welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best tech leaders in the world so you can learn how to scale your business uh, after getting to product market fit, how to navigate hyper growth and succeed getting to the 100 million uh, revenue mark. So today with us, we have two amazing product leaders, uh, some of the best uh, in, in Europe and in the world. And moderating this fireside chat, we have Max Excal, uh, the head of products at Moniz, and Ross McNairn, uh, Chief Product Officer at Travel Work. Max, I will let you lead the show and I'll be around uh, trying to help. So you guys at home or in the office or committing can scale your businesses very successful with the advice of those two guys. Okay, thank you and enjoy. Thank you very much, Mike. Lovely to hear these very kind words and to get into it. So yeah, I'm, so, I'm so lucky today to, to speak with Ross, the Chief Product Officer at Travelperk. We, Moniz is a company, use Travelperk. I love it. You know, it's gotten me out of a, a few scrapes when I've forgotten to book something. So, you know, I'm a you know, big advocate um, and also growth and leading through growth and leadership is something that, you know, that, that I hold very closely and is the key, I think, to running a successful business, especially during the scale. Um, and Ross has been through a hell of a lot and there's even more to come. So um, I'll just hand over for a sec, Ross. It'd be, it'd be great to hear a little bit more about you and then dive into how product's done or what product looks like in travel park. Perfect. Well, again, thank you for very, very generous introductions. <laughs> um, so I run the product team here at Travel Park. We are about four, five years old, um, depending on at what point you determine the company having started at product market fit or um, at incorporation. We, um, we're about 380 people now based in Barcelona. The past couple of years have been the, the point when we really hit decent product market fit, which since then we've, the last 24 months have been about 700% growth. Um, we, at the moment, uh, have a very heavy, very big like operational sales element. We're a very heavy SaaS business, and we're focused predominantly on corporate travel within, for now, Europe. So that means focusing on SMB clients. Well, now definition of SMB is quite broad, but mm. we effectively allow them to to book flights, hotels, cars, etc., and then we layer a small SaaS offering on top of that that is increasingly becoming more and more uniquely compelling and. Uh, we we're seeing fairly decent traction with that with yeah. that at the moment. No, seven seven hundred percent growth is amazing. You know, um, you know, you're talking double digit growth, month on month growth, which is exactly you know, and the, in terms of this the scaling of people as well. You know, that's the, you know, that's what you call blitz scaling. So that's fantastic. Just help me understand and, and sort of help everyone understand how is how is product structured? Do you have a function? Sort of what are the teams like? And and sort of and how does it sort of work together? How does it look? Well, it's changed quite a lot. So uh, what makes travel per quite complex um, is that there's a lot of, it's not just software. We have a huge amount of the business that was effectively fake it till you make it, which means we have uh, parts of the, we discussed this just before the call, but there are, there is a huge people element which scales in a very linear way. So you mm -hmm. double your GMV. If you have a manual aspect in that, it means you have to book, which means more people have to be added to the equation. So product for us is, um, well, at the moment, we're structured into we optimize for experience as our primary frame. So we don't mm -hmm. have small teams based on bits of functionality that gets down to that, but we have three major divisions in the company. So one focused on people that plan travel, one focused on people who travel, and then one 
focused on people who control travel. And then within each of those major groups, we then have subdivisions of specific bits of responsibilities and numbers. And then with we've, our fundamental unit is a squad, which is fairly... Fairly uh, self-explanatory, yeah. But, yeah, but fairly if, universal, but, yeah. But people say that, and then, and then whenever I talk about it, you know, there's always confusion. So, so what does a squad mean for you? So again, yeah, very good point, because for us, it's entirely cross-functional. So mm-hmm. for example, our flights team will have uh, some manual agents that actually do some of the booking within it. It'll have commercial contractors or one representative at least from that, and then product engineering design. But the idea that product managers effectively are many CEOs of their own company is something that I'm quite wedded to, and I think mm-hmm. builds a very strong culture of uh, you know, empowerment and accountability and all the, mm-hmm. the good things that come from that. So for us, the squad is effectively a miniature company. And the nice thing about this exact point of scale is that we can still contain a lot within a squad. Obviously, as mm. we start to scale to the next phase in the next few months, we'll have to think carefully about how we subdivide that. Yeah, so it's really interesting to hear sort of customer service agents being within squads. You know, I've been organizations where that's very much not the case. It's sort of engineering, product, sort of design, marketing when they're very good, you know, but, you know, they ignore the sort of sales piece because sales are sort of thrown somewhere else and they're in their own room or their own floor. Um, so that's amazing. You know, it must, there must be, you know, talk me through the advantage. I imagine there's a very fast feedback loop between launching stuff and getting feedback. So, you know, you talk, talk me through the advantages. Well, feedback, definitely a big part of it. But just in terms of the, the scope that people start to design with it, what they think about in terms of how they can affect the experience, when you have a... You know, when you break the, the the stigma of everything having to just be pure software, you find that the people's focus on what's possible <laughs> changes. And so, I mean, for example, we uh, we offer Airbnb booking through uh, through our concierge service, which right now actually is an almost entirely manual process. Like it's, it's it involves a huge amount of backwards and forwards and having to do things behind the scenes that just there are not APIs for, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. you can you can start to develop all sorts of unique propositions and features when you when you you break yourself away from the need for everything to just be perfectly automated. And having people in the teams allows for that sort of holistic thinking to take place. So one, we optimize for the experience, and then B, we give them the tools to do whatever they need to do to make that experience great. Okay. No, that's uh, yeah, that's really interesting. Having sort of oh, you, uh, you the phrase I've used before is like a model office. You have sort of dedicated teams but then really highly trained customer service staff that you can you know that that can manage and adapt know really in detail what's going on what the feature is the value um and you know as you as you're right it stops you having to think about being software as the as the only answer which which yeah and the other big 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 benefit of it is especially when you're in a business like travel park where there's a big bit a big operational component one of your major uh, dependencies is your rollout is how effectively you communicate, train and feedback with that side of the business. Mm-hmm. So it's very easy for PMs and, and software engineers to uh, you know, fire a presentation, a few bullet points out and think that's job done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> when you've got somebody in the team who they actually have to go through actually MVPing that internal rollout, rollout mm-hmm. process with, it makes something much smoother. So it, you sort of treat them like another stakeholder and it, it yeah, yeah, and I think just getting the right people in the same place, talking about the right, the right thing. I just, and if you do that holistically every day, you know, 
people are a lot more empathetic to each other, a lot more understanding. And, and the, the discussion I found is which, and no, I, I love that. I think that's fantastic. Um, yeah. Well, I think just the core philosophy is you can either try and, most people try and solve things with process. Mm. When most of the time, if you fix your communication streams and most process evaporates, you don't need it. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. the first, my, my default reaction is try and fix it structurally to get people speaking. And then if in the wake of that, you then need to put in place some gates and administration, then begrudgingly, that's an option. But <laughs> Yeah, there, there's something, obviously, we work in a regulated space and there's, there's, and there's things, you know, the, the protection of the customer is for, you know, foremost in my mind and the product needs minds. But I'm definitely trying to err on leadership and culture as the, the main protectors um, of, the, of, of the customer and the business. Um, and, and process is there as a sort of last resort. Uh, but you know, not 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 initially up front. I think you know you, you're getting into it, you know, getting into the ethics. You know, if you take away agency from people and and allow them to say that somebody else does compliance or somebody else does risk or somebody else does customer service, then then you don't you know you just naturally as a human being don't invest as much as you could do if you were ultimately responsible for it. Yeah. It, well, it kind of comes down to there's actually a principle that we wrap under that, which is you put by visit Sky Scanner before, and they have a really good culture of um, you build it, you run it. Mm-hmm. You know, like this idea that you can pick it up and throw it over the wall somewhere else. So there's a QA guy or a DevOps guy or a customer care agent. The, the more that you uh, embed the responsibilities within a team, generally, the higher the output, the quality, and the accountability. And actually, empowerment is people. People are more uh, engaged if they if they, they if they're in control yeah. of their own destiny. Exactly, and when something goes wrong, you know they 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 feel a lot more beholden upon themselves to go and fix it because it's them. They you know they they did something or, or it's broken and it's their investment it's their baby and they want to go and make sure it's okay. And yeah, so exactly. one, of the, one of the things that's coming out and I, and it comes out again and again is 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 the role of leadership and role modeling. You know, you're talking about sort of cult. I think we're both talking about culture and um, and leadership and role modeling over process, which I think is super interesting. You know, my background in the military, where you know, you're very much seen to role model and you know, in the British British military, serve to lead. You're there to serve your soldiers, not the other way around. Um, I'd love to hear your experience at um, sort of how you found how you found the leadership journey so far. I, I think there's been a couple of inflection points <laughs> when okay. you ask that, that my, 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 mind, my mind jumps back to. I think mm. one, one thing that sort of underpins it all is very quickly, you know, I'm, I'm not a very hierarchical person. I don't really look too much in it. I think in one of the, the benefits of a lot of, it's a blessing and a curse for many small startups is they throw a lot of that out the window and they mm. only come to it very much later on. But I found one of the side effects of it as I moved through the leadership positions is I perhaps underestimated both the potentially positive and potentially negative impact that every small movement that you make, you have to sort of get used to the, the power armor that you're wearing, right? And sometimes is, you don't really begin to realize the necessity for. Yeah, this is really interesting. And especially in a small organization, because the small organization sort of magnifies. I think you know, I, I've sort of, I've sort of, it's sort of like a, it's like a pendulum. You know, if if you're at the bot, if you, if you're sort of working on code, your ability to influence the whole organization is you know, can be quite big, but relatively small. But the further up you move, you know, a very small change results in a huge swing. And and exactly. just by just by being a leader, you're sort of 
and by leading teams and then leading teams leading teams your 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 actions it's your very it's your not can be mag are magnified naturally and what i've been trying to do is limit that so that instead of the instead of the pendulum swinging frequently singing deliberately have you found the same thing or have you well so for me the approach yeah very much that model but my approach of it is that i found there to be more and more of a necessity to drive off core basic principles because that means that consistency is the thing that makes your presence that stops that from being a negative thing and actually mm -hmm. if you, if you do it in the right way you use the same consistent approach to decision making and you get people to understand how and what the two or three or four or 10 or whatever drivers are that are mm. at the root of many of the decisions that you make, you actually find that you can amplify that even beyond your, your, your physical presence. And then mm. the, the point that you know that you're beginning to get in the right direction with it is when you find that your team are making decisions as if you were in the room when you were. <laughs> That's <laughs> and, really and interesting. Yeah. If those are consistent with the way in which you want, decisions to be made and you're happy with the, the outcome of them, then you know that you're probably taking the correct principled approach to conveying that and reinforcing the messaging that you should be. Mm. I think that's so interesting because you um, the culture being about what goes on in the room when, when, when leaders aren't there, um, I think is fascinating. And it's definitely something that you know, we, we're sort of 150 in products, hopefully going to scale to 500 next year. You know, there is no way that I could be in, you know, in, in 39 meetings at the same time. So how, how, how are you planning? You're going through the similar growth. Yeah, you, you're talking about consistency and clarity, but, but as as your mathematically your ability, your time you could spend reduces just through mathematics. What are the what are the tools or the frameworks or the things you're going to do to try and sort of really, you know, drive this? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question because there are a couple of points when you need to obviously. It's a really good book on this, the Leadership Pipeline, which I think is. Like, mandatory reading for anybody going through these stages the first four chapters are brilliant <laughs> but i think the couple of vanilla tools that i tend to use that i find most impactful so i think i delay them as late as possible but when they come in they usually have to be <laughs> but when you start to get proper i mean the first person that you promote the first way in which you go about formally defining what the 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 reasons are behind that the way in which you define your frameworks for career progression and then in turn the way that you reinforce those things again and again and again and again, really craft, you know, the ladder that people know is the right way to approach things. And again, the inverse of that, which the one or two occasions when you do start to use frustration as a tool, <laughs> you just need to make sure you're extremely controlled and pointed about the types of behaviors that you consistently reinforce should and should not be there. And so mm -hmm. I, the way that I find that I get the consistency in my approach there is I, I write it, I really write it down. Like I have a version of what I expect in terms of how I'm trying to get people to go. Mm -hmm. um, I write down a long form version of that. And then I distill that very much into my frameworks, my competency approaches. And then every single performance review, every one-to-one, -one, I try and reinforce that. I try and speak to them and say, oh, you know, I understand this is where, where we discussed this earlier. And you try and make, and I think unless you write it down, unless you're very, very strict about being structured about where it sits, then it's, it's very easy to just go off piste and start mm -hmm. going ad hoc. <laughs> I think oh, that's fascinating. Um, you know, I think one of the things I've heard before is you're know, talking about culture again. Is the culture of your organisation is the worst behaviour a leader is willing to tolerate, or the organisations yeah. is is willing to tolerate? And um, yeah, and then that could be quite brutal. But I think your point, 
I, th I think most people got that point or most people do get that point but your point about actually you need to use this as a story as a narrative for showing people what's what you know what is not acceptable but also turning it on his head what is acceptable and, and how people can progress yeah. Well, when I was saying about the inflection points earlier, like there definitely was one where I realized that there is a debt to pay by avoiding conflict around certain things that you ignore, mm -hmm. you know, and that, again, it makes it much easier for you if you're the type of person that doesn't enjoy, uh, you know, you want to build it. It's sort of contradictory for many people. They get this idea that they want to build a great team spirit and a bond with their team, et cetera, but they also want to enforce really strict and specific boundaries. and. I think it's much easier for you if you're very crisp and advanced what those are and you write the stuff down. It makes it very, very easy for you to then cascade through and do the negative aspects of pushing certain behaviors away when you need to if you've done that in advance. Interesting. So so do you think if I spoke to anybody in product, they would they they could read they, they could they know. <laughs> do they, are they are they are they written down or are they are they implicit or explicit? Well, there's, 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 there's combinations. Like we have like formal rituals and informal ones and practices. Okay. I mean, so for example, like, I give you a really simple, like, trivial respect one that's maybe less formal, which is done in a soft way to reinforce. I mean, I have my frameworks of how we'll approach analysis or mm -hmm. leadership or a okay definition or anything like that. But just a simple one, uh, say punctuality for a simple weekly meeting, right? Mm -hmm. like, it's a really simple repeated behavior that actually cascades if you do or don't to sort of define a practice there of how your team operates, it can actually have a really positive impact on how they then cascade through all the other stuff that they do with their teams, how they respect other people's times, et cetera. And so we have soft ritual around that kind of thing where, you know, you come more than a minute late to the weekly meeting, me included, and the next week, whoever does that is on wrap for something simple like bringing all the snacks for a week. But this is the, the, this is the weekly, but there's like simple behaviors that we just mm -hmm. reinforce these like soft cultural things of how we, and that's tied back. And when we put that in place, we agreed as a, group what the the principles that we would approach things with and that was like we will respect each other and respecting mm -hmm. means you respect each other's time and space and then this was just a manifestation of that behavior and as long as the, the team can tie that back to something that they understand mm -hmm. then it it quickly kicks into like a repeated mm -hmm. reinforced action yeah and the, the and what the, the important nuance there which you said which is we agreed this together and we committed to it For it sure. wasn't it wasn't you imposing that this on on people. But yeah, no, my, my principles here, my, my team definition here versus versus a let go or a sketch kind of before, they, they, they're not completely, but they are materially different based on the group of people and based on the, the culture of the company. I think that's super interesting because people try and relive the failures or fix the failures in their old companies or, 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 or hark back to it rather than understand their context they're in. And one of the first conversations I have with product leads is, just come in, you know, the only thing you've got to worry about for the first two, three months is keep the team executing on what's already been agreed and really understand the scope. And, and then you can then understand that. So do it our way first and then you yeah, can do whatever sure. you want because that way it shows that you're fle intellectually flexible and willing to try it another way. And, and it shows that you can do it. So it's not a question of you can't do it. And I think that's, yeah, it's it's really helpful because you you see people who are who don't want to do that. And you're like, okay, wh why do you not want to do it? Is it just you can't do it, or, or you don't want to? And it's one of the early tests and the early feelings I get from people is to sort of can they can they be intellectually plastic and adapt, which I think is super interesting. Yeah, yeah, well, I think also it's a lot of people underestimate the complexity of executing big change in companies, and the number one thing that slows you down is um, buy-in and the 
the, the mutual respect and mutual relationships that you've built in the company. And you cannot walk in and effectively facilitate significant change until you have that stuff. And by definition, that takes a while. And by definition, to get that, people need to truly believe that you respect and understand their space. And it's not possible for you to convey or build that, that bond until you've had a few months of being truth, truthfully open-minded to what they're doing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I entirely agree. Yeah, that's interesting. That's fascinating. So these, so these, the ritual, you know, I was, I, would, I did some training the other week and they said, right, lecture start on time, it's a Swiss train. You know, you're either in the start and you're on the train or you're not on the train, uh, which I thought, you know, given the release train mentality of software engineers, I thought it was a, it was a nice turn of phrase and a nice visual image for it. For people to get behind, so I thought that you know, I really like that. But but let's get let's come back. If you do, you have a product charter. Do you have sort of principles or rituals or values? And they sort of are they on the walls or are they agreed to? Or we have different levels. So yeah, we have consistent values around how a company wants to approach things, you know, mm-hmm. in which we intentionally catchphrase the seven stuff service for example this is like a tenant of everything that we build and then we have secondary ones which are more at a squad level so we're now rebuilding the uh the mobile experience in the ground up in that mm-hmm. world there are four basic principles around how he, um damiel wants to be uniquely competitive and the philosophy that he wants to take with that it's like for example uh you know offline first mm-hmm. you know and this and this and actually those things were almost like a, a checklist that he tests his big roadmap items against or you know, facilitating primarily a certain type of customer interaction, et cetera. And so he, we, I'm a big fan of principle-based design for just about everything. I think it's mm-hmm. the hangover of, I used to, like, long-term previous life, he was trained as, like, a Scottish lawyer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, the, the unique approach to, to law in Scotland versus in other jurisdictions is that every single time you analyze anything, you almost forget what the physical example is. You go up to looking at the principle. And it's a principle-based system. So everything mm-hmm. is about understanding the connecting root threads. And for me, that's a very important part of any of the PMs is they need to be able to jump up that level. So we, we definitely, and we've, we're very formal about it. They're, you're quite right. They're printed all over the walls. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you go through, you talked about promotion. So how do you, so do, do, can, yeah, how do product needs get promoted? Do they, do they just go up a band or do they go up a title or do they go up in responsibility? And talk us through the ritual about how you use this as a vehicle to reinforce the culture. So uh, in some, some cases, we have several tiers within titles. And I try and move away from title necessarily being mm-hmm. something that... So actually, we have quite deep bandings within titles because you know, there's a lot of progression that can happen in between necessarily jumping jumping levels and the ritual that we tend to have around it, we're actually just about so i've been here about seven months now we just restructured a bunch of the way in which we do performance management so we'll be going through our first round of that very soon here but like before when we did that i think for me the way I, I see it like as i said before this is a very good example a very good time when you first embed to really show like the first round of promotions you do are critical because they they really put uh gravitas to the things and the reasons that you promote people and they either if they're consistent with the messaging you've given to date it's super powerful if they're inconsistent it sends chaos because people really do put a lot of ego on title so it can become an incredibly emotional thing and become very negative very quickly yeah so the way in which i approach particularly that first round is i always am very uh i'm very proactive about publishing my formal expectations early on I then okay. give an informal bit of feedback 
which the guys have just been getting here now, which the past like couple of months where they effectively get dummy reviews where I'm helping them to understand mm-hmm. where they possibly would sit in it. And then we go through uh, with some of the other senior cross-functional teams and largely engineering, we'll go through a process of, of proper calibration, right? Where it okay. becomes a very open discussion objectively against my framework as to whether or not these people meet it. So many of my PMs have been told you know, they're very spiky in some areas and underdeveloped mm-hmm. in others, others. And so it becomes a, uh, the way I see it and the way I try and build it is that it's me and them against my framework. Mm-hmm. Like the framework is something that I lay out. I reinforce yeah. the legitimacy of it. And then it's me and me and my team are trying to get them to crash through the gates because my interest mm-hmm. is to get them promoted at the right time. Yes. And getting them to understand that is, is absolutely critical. Mm-hmm. And promotion is generally a lagging indicator on your ability to perform at that level. Mm-hmm. So if you can exactly. define the level very clearly, you can help people understand their relative position because people are terrible at understanding where they sit relative mm. to something like this. That's that's my job, really, is giving them the interesting. Do you mean relative position next to your to each other, like stack ranking, or relative position to your framework? I definitely try and make it relative to the framework. And so you guys think that there obviously is an element of relative to your peers, which by definition of many of you competing against the same framework, it will exist. But mm. I think if you become too relative to your peers, then they you create all sorts of negative dynamics. It needs to be that we are both trying to get through this central thing. So this is why the framework is so important, right? If you don't have that, either your subjectivity gets called into doubt or people start to compete too relatively against each other, which is, mm-hmm. is not necessarily a, a healthy mm-hmm. foundation for everything. Mm. And this, that's really interesting because you know, there, there's a scale of competition from sort of the Hunger Games on one side to to nobody ever challenges or questions or, or says anything controversial on the other side, and and both both ends of the spectrum are, in my perspective, equally useless and worthless, and and the nuance is in the balance. And I found if if you can if you can have grown ups that really know their the detail of what they're talking about and you're, 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 you're kicking the football, not kicking each other, you know, in terms of the idea, I think that's when I found that you can sort of bridge those two gaps where it's sort of intellectual conversational debate around an idea, but you're not sort of the hunger games where sort of, the, or the Highlander where there's only sort of one standing. Around. The thing is, is that sometimes there's a, there is a healthy blend of that, right? Like, I mean, so I, I try and introduce parts of that intra-team competition in some places in the company. So, for example, when we plan goals, we plan on a quarterly cycle. This is a, this, this is a, an approach I've taken consistently in most places I've worked, where um, I find, well, we plan generally on a quarterly basis. And then at the end of well, the start, whichever, where you, where you look at the world of each quarter, uh, the teams pitch. And within pitching, they write, like, I like long-form thinking, tend to get better quality with a few pages of that, of, of mm-hmm. A4. But with, even with, on top of that, they then layer a short presentation summarizing their performance in the previous quarter, what their promises were, how they met that, and then what they believe they need to do to achieve this next quarter's goals, and then what mm-hmm. they would like from the company in return for that. And then the team's performance effectively just gets, gets graded, right, as part of their OKR or their like resource utilization process. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like this process of repeatedly pitching against an internal VC, um, where those who build up a nice track record of, I've got like my real team, for example, annihilated the last quarter. <laughs> they, mm. they, they, I mean, it's, it's, been, it's, been, it's been brilliant. Like our, our UK rail product is now probably best in market. Um, uh, and it's almost entirely down to the work of this, this one squad. They radically exceeded expectations. And so it means that when they now come forward with uh, 
like their promise of where they're going to go in the next quarter. I'm pretty much like, dude, whatever you need, like, how <laughs> come mm. work in your team? Like, That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah, Gibson Gibson Biddle, you know, the the, the XVP of Netflix says the same thing. You know, you should, you should treat. He calls it the quarterly board strategy meeting, product strategy meeting, where you come in and you know and. You're you're right. I think a number of a number of things you said on the head, the, the the sort of golden thread that's coming out is consistency. Because if you have the same thing and you're you know, the same meeting or the same ritual with the same sort of metrics, and you're going at that again and again and again over time, you can get a re- with that consistency. You can you can really feel who's sort of who's ste- who, you know, who's underperforming, who's steady, or which teams are steady, or which products, you know, even if you don't want to focus on teams, which products are sort of declining, and you might have to look at either reinvigorating or retiring, who's steady, and who's sort of, who are the rock stars, which you quietly said, you know, who are going to get the sort of more resource to sort of then exploit that opportunity. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. And the, the thing is that when, you're, when your team know it, even again, in the independence of me, uh, like me not being there to, to provide feedback, they can tell me by almost the same criteria of who is and isn't killing, which is brilliant. And, so, and then I ground largely as much as possible, again, when it comes to the squad's performance rather than against a framework on an individual level, the squads have we're super numbers heavy. So every single week we have this ritual where each group sits down with a, an Excel sheet. This is only I learned from my old uh, Skyscanner boss. He used to be at Amazon. Um, but the way in which they, they run their their um, AWS business is largely in this way, weekly, week-on-week metrics, 50 of key metrics, and then you just review the delta from the week before. We sit down 3 p.m.s and me every week for now, and we just go through the numbers. And this is just this repeated objective exercise of testing everything against how we're tracking on this. And after you do that for a few months, people know the rules of the game, right? It's mm-hmm. not it's not about sending me an email or about catching me in the hallway. It's about showing shifting key metrics in certain places. And it just becomes this objective, consistent rhythm to how you view the world. And the team, I think, generally, they tend to respond very well to that. And so is that you with one of the teams or you with all the teams or how does that? So when I started, when I first came in, I had to do it on an individual basis with each PM for an hour a week just to get them up to to help them define and understand their metrics and then get them to the rhythm of doing this. And when they were individually operating on a decent level, I then grouped them into small groups based on our structure. So the travelers group, for example, or the planners group, Mm -hmm. we then do it as a rhythm there. And then when those guys are then working well, then, you know, they, they then step up to the next level. And I know then start to do one weekly rhythm for the whole thing. And then when that starts to work well, as I do with my inventory team, and so it becomes a, a, a nice way of scaling your style of getting busy. Because the, the mm-hmm. biggest challenge to scaling this kind of thing is really maintaining reliable transparency as the, as the company mm-hmm. gets bigger. I don't want to be looking everywhere, but I need to know that if there's a problem, it'll bubble up to me extremely quickly. So mm-hmm. putting in place those information flows is the first thing you've got to do. So. I found for me this way of getting right into the, the coal face and then working my way backwards on metrics rhythms has been a very effective way of getting those those tendrils to my spider web. Mm. So are these OKRs or are they KPIs or there's something else that you made up? These are all KPIs and then OKRs on top of that are directional adjustments to them. So each squad maybe has like 30 or 40 of them. So the payments team will look at a blend of different payment methods, failure mm. rates, like various types of authentication that go with that number of transactions. Like there are a lot of them, and you add to them each week mm-hmm. as you analyze them. And then on top of that, quarterly, we might want to shift some of those up and down, and those then become their OKRs. And so who 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 chooses the target? Because, you know, historically, leaders have congratulated themselves by telling somebody to do a 1,000 press-ups, and then 
berated them when they couldn't do a thousand press-ups, you know, how, which, we, you know, and that was the old style of management, you know, I'm great, I'm going to set a really aspirational goal, and when people don't beat, you know, get to it, I'm going to beat them up for not being able to achieve it. Uh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. you do something a little bit more uh, nuanced and a bit more modern. Yeah, well, kind of like what you're alluding to, I couldn't agree more with, is I've seen revenue goals that are insane be dropped on companies before, and it just, it, it just disengages and irritates mm-hmm. everybody, because... You you delegitimize your your uh, you, you know as a leader you become a lot less legitimate because all of a sudden everybody knows it's stupid so they they just stop thinking about it yeah. so um, I, I try and divorce a few things like one is that like OKRs for me are trying to drive a particular solution so there are situations where I will force a bigger OKR but that's mm-hmm. largely because you know if, if I want a different type of solution. So if I want somebody to just ratchet up, say, like, I don't know, something silly, like, like number of errors on card declines, that'll probably be an incremental, you know, it's already pretty good. I just wanted, like, mm-hmm. same level. So I'll leave that as a reasonable, like, target that the team can define within. But if I want, say, a step change in a solution, so, for example, the rail guys, I want them to find a way of incorporating rail into the results that 10 times is the number of companies, new companies that adopt rail. I will intentionally put a moonshot OKR on top because I don't want them thinking about an incremental solution. I want them mm-hmm. to step away and think, shit, how do I, how do I do that? <laughs> and then, then you make it quite clear. And so this is why the difficulty element to OKR scoring is super important. And you make it, again, this is a cultural thing to reinforce, but consistently hitting simple OKRs is not a reason to, to be praised, right? But making 10% progress against an exceptionally difficult one is of course something to be to be mm. enormously praised. So, if you treat them the wrong way and you don't score how difficult they are in certain parameters, that's why it's mm. not just did they or didn't they meet it. You have to actually think about if the team put real progress in. So, you have to look at them independently from the underlying KPIs that they're working on, and see see how that that works and grade it like that. Yes. So, you know, we've we we've tried and failed to do OKRs for. <laughs> six nine months and we, we think with this you know we, we're going through a place of just revisiting them then now and we think we we think we've come to a place where we've got key kpis for a feature so that the feature level rather than the team level because this feature you know, is this feature successful you should be able to tell if the feature is successful so yeah. you took a kpis the feature level and then okay are sitting above sitting above that which is okay where do what 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 is the business goals or broader that we want to achieve over the next year and, and, and sort of how do we make them increasingly you know increasingly ambitious but not in a you know not in a ridiculous way right you know if you were to do percentages of like you know quarter one might be 10 percent quarter two might be 30 percent quarter three might be 50 percent and then quarter four might be 100 percent. so it allows you to really think like you're saying longer term about okay i i need to i need to get all the way up there you know i've got some time to think about it but, but I can get all the way up there. I think that's really interesting. And what, yeah. so, so talk, talk me through what happens if a team comes in and some of the okay, some of the KPIs are not looking good. How does that go? Well, I mean, first first off, I mean, it depends. So, you know, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, if, if something's fallen off a cliff and there's a very rational, I mean, they had some numbers dropped the other day. Um, mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't the issue. The numbers dropped. It bothered me. It bothered me at all. It was, it actually ended up being a data error. But the, the frustration was that it wasn't caught for uh, like 72 hours, something like this. And that, that situation, you know, it was fine. The first team that happened to discuss it was super open about it. We have a very 
our CEO is ex-Israeli military, so they have a very uh, open post-mortem culture over there, mm. which is awesome because it dribbles mm. through everything that we do here. Like the first thing, which is no blame, mm. get it up, get it open, share. Mm. And so everybody's super happy to do that. The problem will come when the lessons of that are not applied. Yes. <laughs> that's that's the issue. So, um, and again, the same goes for for KPIs and teams. The other day we saw a big drop on another part of conversion because of pricing errors. The guy spotted it, they fixed it. And actually that's my number one thing that I praise that team for internally now because the, the dis- dissemination of those lessons has been amazing. A bunch of other teams didn't even know to look at this metric until they spotted it, they advertised it, they shared the fix. And now this revalidation number has become key to three teams metrics. So on their own, KPIs moving is BAU, right? It's the action and the adoption of the lessons from that that are the two bits that I focus on. And I guess like a very important principle above that is that I optimize vastly more for recovery from failure than I do for the avoidance of it. And that's kind of cliched, but you really, that that is the biggest thing that you can make a a stink in a culture about is um, not getting the distinction between those two things, right? I mean, in mm-hmm. my opinion, especially in product, because then you create a bunch of people who are terrified to move and that's yeah. ultimately what will kill you. Yeah, no, I think, and, and, and again, it comes back to consistency. I think as long as, as long as you're not changing this every 10 minutes or every two days and you're consistent about, you know, mean time to recovery of a, so, as opposed to mean time between errors, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah and, I th- and I think that's what I'm cue. We, you know, we've got some pretty, pretty leading edge monitoring, you know, and, and I find out you know, within three or four minutes if something's not working, especially something yeah, exactly. big. So, um, yeah, so, yeah. And we don't go in, you know, and you're right, I, I love that culture, you, you sort of the blameless post-mortem or the, you know, the blameless retrospective, which if you look at you know, all the books about you know, psychological safety from Google's Project Oxygen or anything else, that you know, and people being open and honest about what happened or why it happened, to be able to you to understand what went wrong, honestly, rather than think you know, but the reality was different. Um, I think so powerful. You know, very powerful. Now, I think I think I think we're running out of time. I don't know how long we've got yet, Mike. I would say let's go for the last five minutes. Last five minutes. Okay, so let's let's do a little bit more, and then, and then we can wrap up. Um, one of the things I think is interesting is uh, you know, talking about leadership again. Is how how do you lead leaders of leaders rather than just people who lead teams? Yeah, I think you, you, I imagine you're going through that now. Do you have a, a product director layer or a VP layer, and sort of How's that fundamentally? Has that fundamentally changed your role? Yeah, so actually, I'm hiring a product director at the at the moment here, um, mm-hmm. which is a good little shout out. <laughs> but um, <laughs> anybody's interested uh, in Barcelona, lovely city. Yeah, anybody who just wants to live a fantastic life and work with an incredible company, you know. But it's not for everyone, right? <laughs> um, no, I mean, but but product here is a little bit broader than just the product management function. So mm-hmm. underneath the same org, we also have supplier relations, inventory management, and then design also nest within that a few other functions. So within yeah, yeah. those, I have more developed leadership. Um, so in inventory, um, we have a VP that is there and uh, designs for the head of design as well. And so I find that, um, again, it, this this largely, you know, the, that, that book is actually a very good articulation of this too, the inflation mm-hmm. points of going up through managing managers, et cetera. But yeah. Again, I can't really emphasize enough this principal side of things and that mm-hmm. I find that the more senior people that I manage, uh, the more that they are actually striving and they need to, the, the help I can give there is helping them to 
formalize their own thoughts on why their behavior is the way that it is, because the trick then ceases to become just being consistent yourself and helping others to adopt the same approach, right? And the the mentality shift that you need to go through when they're also becoming a conduit for that culture is 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 a bit more introspective. So we spend a lot more one-to-ones are a lot longer. We spend a lot more time going off piece away from like really thinking about why the behavior is the way it is and getting people to the point whereby they they build their own philosophy on why they're doing what they're doing. And then from that you find that they become extremely consistent in their own right. Mm. But it's not a very easy thing to do. <laughs> no, no, no. And it's, and it's intensive. So you can't, you know, at the moment I've got 12 product teams and then, you know, that, that limits my time. And so I need to find product directors that I can invest more time in fewer people for them to invest more time in fewer people. You know, uh, exactly. And I think the biggest, the biggest difference is you have to really recognize that line management is a different career, right? Just because somebody's a great PM doesn't mean that they... Yeah are a professional i mean it is a profession in its own right and Mm -hmm. treating that transition with the necessary respect is best for everybody and that you 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 encourage you've really set that as a very right the way back to my framework i explained like guys there are two different tracks here this is a different function that you're talking about if you go Mm -hmm. major in this and if you want to go through that transition it's something that now we're beginning to develop a proper uh, formula around how they go through level one transition into line management. They, mm-hmm. We call it out. We're explicit about the fact that you're going through a change. You remove the shame factor for asking for help. You get a specific mentor. You mm-hmm. go through formal training. You get a damn long reading list <laughs> and a few other things like this that, that help people go through it. And all of that ceremony and pomp around that transition also helps people respect the mm-hmm. fact that it is it's a big job. Yeah. yeah, and then they double down and they start to really think about what what, what is going on because mm-hmm. all too often in startups, people blur day-to-day with line management. It's not a formal thing. And then before you know it, it's just not happening. And yeah. then all the negative cultural symptoms of that come through and then you really scupper yourself because six, 12 months down the line, you have to rebuild the whole leadership layer and you just have C-suite and a bunch of ICs and it's that's a nightmare scenario for everybody to be in. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time, Ross. I know I learned a huge amount. Uh, the director role in Barcelona, you know, I've got an amazing job. That sounds fantastic as well. Um, you know, there's some key things that I you know, pulled out, you know, leading with principles, I thought was fantastic and reinforcing those, making them explicit and transparent, you know, helping leaders come to their own conclusion about leadership and their own philosophy and helping them be consistent you know the golden thread running through the you know everything we talked about was was a consistency which i very very strongly believe in i thought that's fantastic yeah and 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 the ways the ways in which you sort of show that you know through role modeling through yourself through the rituals and through your examples of who who you promote and and who you remove um really interesting stuff i'm you know love to come out in barcelona grab a coffee and talk more about it you know thank you so much for your time uh, and thank you both. You know, it was very kind of you to have me on. It's been lovely, to, lovely, and very, uh, very interesting chat. Thank you so much. I'm going to hand over to hand over to Mike. So, what an amazing uh, show! And before we kind of close the show officially, I just would like to quickly get back to you and ask one of the favorite questions of every single edition, which is, uh, and let's start with you, Ross. If you have the opportunity to meet yourself. Uh, when you join its travel perk, what advice would you give to yourself? So if I could go back and meet myself of when I first came into the company, what would I tell myself? Yeah. <laughs> and so that's a great question. Um, 
I would tell myself that airline distribution is a lot harder than you thought you knew. <laughs> <laughs> like I came with like what I was perceived and I thought I knew a bit about about the travel industry and then everything just exploded. And yeah, when I started to try and get, no, but in seriousness, I'd tell myself that um, never, never underestimate the, the complexity of humans in the loop. <laughs> like, oh. it, 10 times is how difficult it is to do things, but also makes your value prop unbelievable so no, probably you are right. well then what about you max very quickly um yeah really quickly i think yeah pausing pausing for a little bit, bit longer orientating you know nobody nobody ever won a race by running the fastest in the wrong direction so yeah um i think taking a bit more observe orientating and then yeah and then going i think you know i took two weeks which you know in hindsight, probably wasn't enough. Um, no. I think I could have done that. But but we are where we are. We're successful. So something something must have worked out okay. Thank you, Rox. Thank you, Max. Thank you also to our community who is joining us uh, at office, at home, or or really commuting. As you can understand, the main bottleneck of growth is always yourself, and of course, the way you structure your team and the way you really keep learning and executing as quickly as possible. So we keep showing up every single week to let you know how to scale your business and how to get to your milestones. So see you next week and thanks again for joining.